Thick descriptions disrupts traditional educational methods. And why do we do that? Because we want to help humans thrive where they are, building better communities. One way that we do that is the Elephant in the Room Unboxed, where we give our audience members the tools and the resources to have those uncomfortable conversations and do it in a humane and anthropological way. We're doing this in partnership with Respect Diversity, another organization that is committed to doing the work with us. Each episode will have a different host and a different guest talking about uncomfortable conversations or uncomfortable topics and giving you the resources of how to navigate them. Let's get uncomfortable. Hello, welcome to the third episode of uh, Elephant in the Room Unboxed podcast. My name is Golnaz, and uh, today I will be the host of the third episode. As if I introduce myself, I'm a Community Engagement Exchange Fellow working at Thick Descriptions. And today, as a guest, we have amazing Bailey Perkins Wright. So introducing her, uh, she's a native Lawton and fifth-generation Oklahoman. Bailey works tirelessly as a womanist, um, public policy advocate, and past adjunct professor at a local community college. As an advocacy and governmental affairs professional, she's dedicated to shaping state and federal public policy decisions and strengthening civic engagement in Oklahoma. Her previous work includes leading policy initiatives for a congressional office in Washington, D.C., developing policy advocacy strategies for an Oklahoma fiscal, fiscal policy think tank, and producing publications and analysis on education policy in Arkansas. So, Bailey, welcome and thank you for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited about our conversation. Yeah, me too. So in addition to the introduction, uh, please tell a little more about yourself and what you do. Sure. I am a millennial. Uh, Mm -hmm. I love engaging with people. I am incredibly extroverted and I'm known as a talker. And I say all that because that's part of what fuels my passion of doing work in advocacy and public policy. I'm driven to help advance issues that Mm -hmm. move our state forward and create a more just and equitable environment for all of us. Since I was, uh, I'd say, a a little girl, um, I've always wanted to fix problems that existed <laughs> uh, and use my voice for good. Mm-hmm. And I'm grateful that at this point in my life that I'm able to do that for a living, to be able to help organize and strategize on ways to elevate voices um, from all walks of life, right? Especially mm-hmm. those that are often unheard to be able to um, repair issues and drive solutions that make Oklahoma a better place. I tell folks that I may have been born in Oklahoma, Mm -hmm. um, being fifth generation, but I'm also an Oklahoman by choice. Um, I've worked in Washington, D.C. I lived in Little Rock for a couple of years, but I made the intentional decision to, to move back home because this is the place where I grew up. This is the communities that I care about, and Mm -hmm. um, I'm grateful to be here. Wow, that's amazing, inspiring what you're doing. And I'm personally looking forward to learn more from you and about what you're doing in Oklahoma, because uh, this is all also new to me. Learning about history in Oklahoma is also so interesting. 
So yeah, since our topic today is looking at our history together, uh, could you tell uh, why history matters and how it shapes our understanding of the present and the future? So that is a really important question. I feel that history gives us the roadmap and the landscape to understand the why and how did we get where we are? Because we can't build on what we should do if we don't have context of where we've been. So I feel like we run the risk of missing lessons learned and either repeating mistakes of the past mm-hmm. or we miss the detours that would make getting to the end goal simpler without understanding the history and what led to decisions that were made or the context of where we are today. So I also think about it like building any type of structure or let's say you buy a shelf from Walmart, right? Mm -hmm. And you are getting ready to put it together yourself. The easiest way to do it is to read the instructions in the Mm -hmm. manual that's given to you in the box. If you decide to up and do it yourself, especially if you don't have past experience of building it, you run the risk of putting a wrong piece in a section that it doesn't belong or building it in a way that it's not stable. And so I feel that understanding history is the same in this context, especially as we're talking about decision making that impacts generations, whether that's at a local government level, state or federal level, right? Mm -hmm. We should understand the history of why decisions were made, understand, you know, that guidebook to help us know what things to avoid or what things we need to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so true. And like nowadays, like uh, it seems like many things happening in the world are the repetitions of what went in the past and people might make same mistakes and they oftentimes like might criticize what happened in the historic background but still do the same so it's so so interesting that we don't like learn from the past right sometimes absolutely because the phrase that you know you're doomed to repeat the past if you don't know your history is so true yeah totally agree so uh, in Oklahoma context, uh, what are the some significant moments uh, in Oklahoma's history? And what are some of the laws that feed into modern disparities today? So as we're talking about understanding history, sometimes people have a misconception of why do we have to talk about the past? I wasn't there. But the reality is the things that happen over time set the foundation and have those generational impacts mm-hmm. um, of, especially when it comes to policy decisions of what happens going forward. So I think about it like a house, right? For a home, a stable foundation matters to its sustainability over time. Mm-hmm. In order to properly move forward as a state, we have to have that solid foundation over time. So imagine trying to put the walls of the home or the roof in place, if that foundation's not stable, the home's going to crumble or it's not going uh, to last as long as it could, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
for us as a state to properly move forward, we have to fix the foundations by reconciling with the past. And Oklahoma's past is very checkered. It is not a comfortable conversation when we Mm -hmm. deal with the realities of how our state was formed and the things that continue to influence. A good chunk of Oklahoma was built on trauma even before Mm -hmm. statehood. So I want to talk about a few of those moments of time or events that have affected Oklahoma, but also have impacts of why things exist the way they do today. Mm -hmm. So one area that is important to note about Oklahoma's history is um, forced removal through the Trail of Tears. So during the 1830s, the United States government forced indigenous nations and tribes in the southeastern part of the United States to leave their ancestral lands and go west to, at that time, what was designated as Indian Territory. It was an area that had challenges and climate and other things, and there were people already who lived in the area that was designated as Indian territory. And this isn't just sending people like we would think of, you know, sending them in a car or on an airplane. Indigenous peoples walked by foot or were escorted hundreds of miles. So we're going, we're thinking like Florida and Alabama, right? Those those southeastern states all the way to Oklahoma. People and children died on that trail. Some didn't make it. And they weren't given even the proper resourcing to rebuild. So the people of those nations were brought to what was designated as Indian territory to move into certain segments that the United States told them that this is now the land that belongs to you and you live there, right? They had to figure out building way of life and culture and growing foods, et cetera, in an area that was completely different than where they had existed for hundreds of years, right? Mm -hmm. That had impact on indigenous people and that still impacts them Mm -hmm. today. Another piece of Oklahoma's history that has impact or related to that trauma of the foundation of how we were formed, it's also part of the the Reconstruction era, right? So we're talking like the late 1880s and 1890s, where the country experienced more westward expansion to where more Americans were moving to the western part of the country to where there was interest in Oklahoma. In addition to westward expansion, that was also around the time where African-Americans who were enslaved were also in a period of traveling to different parts of the United States, working to build that concept of an American dream after being freed from being enslaved. So you had two things that were happening at once. So I mentioned that area 
that was noted as Indian territory where there were indigenous tribes forced to be and relocate in Oklahoma on lands that people were already on. Mm -hmm. Then you had folks known as, so we hear the terms, you know, boomer sooner. The term sooner state formed because Indian territory was opened up for people to settle on. So now you had lands that people were told, this is where you will relocate. This is where your way of life will happen. And now we have people settling on mm-hmm. those lands and taking those lands. And it's a complicated history because Indian territory was also looked at during the 1890s as an area potentially that could be founded as a all-Black state. So around that time, you also had former enslaved Africans who were coming to Oklahoma and were also settling in communities trying to build economic wealth and building communities. Oklahoma has more historic all-Black towns than any other state in the nation. So you had uh, visionaries like E.P. McCabe, who founded Langston University, which is our only um, historically black college and university. And it's the furthest one um, west of the Mississippi. I mean, I'm sorry. Yes, west of the Mississippi. And he was working to ensure that, like, building the movement of opportunities for African-Americans, right? Um, But all of that was happening during a time, again, where people were on the, the lands were already owned, and now there are people moving into. So that Oklahoma just has such a checkered history when it comes to how the state was formed and how people settled on land, right? Mm-hmm. Um, part of my family's history, right? On my father's side, my great times three grandmother came to Oklahoma on a wagon train of families and settled in Oklahoma looking for better opportunity after the Emancipation Proclamation, Mm. right? There's so many intersectional stories of how people came to Oklahoma and how it came to be. Mm -hmm. When you look at the first law of the books, when Oklahoma became a state in 1907, the very first law that was made was segregation. That indicates that one of the priorities for those who formed the state government to decide who has power and where people could reside in communities, where they could shop, what water fountains they could use, right? That was the very first law passed and decided in Oklahoma. Another moment that happened in Oklahoma's history, because I'd mentioned the history of our all-Black towns. One area was known as Greenwood, which is in the North Tulsa area. It was a thriving community. So much wealth was being generated in the North Tulsa area. It was reported that the dollar would touch nine times within that community before it would even go outside of the community. You had Black-owned hotels and barbers and newspapers 
restaurants. It was a thriving community. And this is just a hundred years ago that we're talking about, right? The centennial just happened to commemorate what happened that day um, last year in 2021. There was an reported incident that allegedly a young black man assaulted a white woman on an elevator. And because of that untrue rumor, it led to white neighbors, right, within the Tulsa area to go into Greenwood with weapons. And the folks of that community of Greenwood heard that people could be entering their community and they also were armed and prepared to defend their community, right? But the result of that racism and also that alleged incident, right, led to hundreds of African Americans dying in that community and thousands being displaced. Homes were burnt to the ground. The Oklahoma National Guard even had planes in the air that were dropping to destroy the community of Greenwood, right? It was a true massacre. And the community had not recovered, right? The people who lived in that community tried to file insurance claims to rebuild their homes and they were denied, right? The people in North Tulsa who were affected by that massacre had never received compensation or anything from that experience. And that has affected generations. It stole wealth from generations of families and impacted thousands of people in North Tulsa. So I left those four moments in Oklahoma's history to say this. Oklahoma has high rankings in the things that are often bad, from health disparities, food insecurity, all kinds of other things, right? But in the things that we should rank best in, we often rank low. And those things didn't happen just out of happenstance. A lot of it had happened because it's built on a lot of the policies, right, mm -hmm. that happened over time. About segregation, the first law in the books in our state, right, deciding that certain people can live in certain areas. And when you look at the value of homes, uh, where people live in communities today, you see those disparities in wealth gaps. And a lot of it ties to those decisions, right? Mm -hmm. There's an area in Tulsa, so that North Tulsa area, right? The zip code is 74130. It has the lowest life expectancy rate at 68.5 years. There's about... There's a decade long plus gap between that community 
and people who live in the south part of Tulsa. Because historically, that's not where black Tulsans reside, right? Mm -hmm. And it's not because there's a difference in the way that how hard black Tulsans and white Tulsans work, right? It's not about anybody being better than another person, but it is about historic decisions and the fact that North Tulsa hasn't recovered, right? Mm -hmm. That North Tulsa just got its first full service grocery store that has fresh fruits and vegetables and a pharmacy for the first time in decades, right? In the past few years. Well, when did that happen? When did it get? Oh, just recently, just oh. within the past couple of years, the North Tulsa area just got its first full function grocery store wow. in its community, right? So the communities are often under-resourced, mm -hmm. um, that have fewer options and opportunities, are those ones that we see the higher health disparities, the lower life expectancy, right? And the trajectory of that community would have been a lot different if it wasn't literally burnt to the ground. Mm -hmm. And it takes intentional investment and reconciliation in order to help close the gap and move the generational needle to ensure that equity happens, right? Mm -hmm. But there's so much that still needs to happen in order to close that gap that hasn't happened yet. So. Mm -hmm. But wow. anyways, those are a few things about our history that we have to remember that mm -hmm. affect what happens today. And uh, when you were mentioning that there are many things that Oklahoma rank low, one of the things is also education. Yes. Like we rank in, in the top 10 lowest rank, right? So regarding the education, can you tell more about the recent legislation that has consequences to progress, specifically House Bill 1775? that passed last year, which forbids schools from teaching critical race theory. Yes. So we've talked about some of the histories that have impacted Oklahoma and affected that foundation, right? Mm -hmm. I know you mentioned that you're not from Oklahoma and you're interested in learning. Mm -hmm. There are people who are from Oklahoma generationally who had no idea about some of those histories. They had no idea that the Tulsa Race Massacre happened and the level of destruction that happened in those communities. They had no idea that places like Norman had sundown towns mm -hmm. where African-Americans couldn't be in that community when the sun went down because their lives could literally be in danger. That there are places where People were hanged in our state, right? Um, in my community of Lawton, I remember growing up, there was a park that was really worn down and no one ever went to it. And I talked to my parents about it and I learned that it was a segregated swimming pool. That one reason why many African-Americans didn't know how to swim wasn't that 
you know, they didn't like water or anything, but they didn't have access to public pools because those were segregated pools. Those were white only pools. So in my community, that pool was only available to white people. And there were protests to change that, to open it up to any and everyone. And instead of opening up to everyone, the pool closed. So it, that land sat there for a long time. And today, I think they've bulldozed it. And I think there's even like an apartment complex on top of it. Aww. But those histories are important and matter to tell us what is happening today and to understand the context of change. If we suppress it because we feel uncomfortable, then we are sacrificing the ability to think critically and have the context of what are the solutions needed to move forward. Mm -hmm. And then we can't fix that foundation that I was talking about, right? Two legislative sessions ago, the Oklahoma legislature considered a bill known as House Bill 1775 that prevents schools from teaching certain concepts. And the way that the bill was written was so broad that it has many public schools afraid of violating by talking about real histories. It also has language that prevents public colleges and universities for requiring diversity, equity, inclusion trainings. So a couple of examples of the recent implications. The Tulsa Public School District Someone reported that they were in violation of the bill because of something that was being taught or by, I want to say it was a training for teachers that they felt violated the law. And because of that, the State Board of Education reduced the district's accreditation rating. In another school district, Mustang Public Schools, there was an activity among students um, typically referred to as like a trust walk of, you know, take a step forward if you've ever experienced this, take a step back if you've never experienced this. That activity was reported as a violation of that law. And that school district received reprimand in the same way that Tulsa Public Schools did, right? Teachers are pulling certain books off the shelf that have historic value or give us different perspectives, right, on experiences in the United States. I mentioned about forced removal and the settling on Indigenous lands. There was another massacre that happened among the Osage people in order to get 
their oil so that people could build wealth. There were stories of white men marrying Osage women just so that they could get the rights to their land to get to that oil to make money, right? Mm-hmm. Those things really happened. Mm-hmm. And there's a movie being made about what happened to that. There's a book, it's called Killers of the Flower Moon. And there are districts who are afraid to teach about it because they're worried that it could be in violation of this law. And they're worried because even there's leaders who were elected who have said, if teachers are violating this law, they will be fired, right? So Mm -hmm. people's jobs are on the line by talking about real history. So those are implications of keeping context of the past and being able to use that teaching it forward. Because if we are afraid of teaching the next generation of what has happened, then we can't have the context to know to build forward and the solutions that need to happen to, to help us move forward as a state. Like uh, everything that you're talking about, like there's such important historical cases to know, like to, for the generations to know. And I don't get like, what was the justification to uh, pass this bill? Like, was it like, so mm, next generation won't feel guilt for the past doings of their ancestors? Was that the justification? That's the root. So there is a misinterpretation that those teachings are rooted in something called critical race theory. And so because all of the concepts have been conflated, it's lead, the consequence is we're not having real and authentic conversations about our past and our past experiences and having diverse conversations about experiences in Oklahoma and in this nation. Part of the concern is the argument of this makes me feel uncomfortable or makes me feel blamed for something of the past, right? Mm -hmm. And history shouldn't make us feel blame, Mm -hmm. but it should help us understand and walk in discomfort because the things that have happened over time in the state of Oklahoma are not comfortable things. Mm -hmm. It's trauma and it has harmed people generationally. But just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean that we shouldn't talk about it because that's going to prevent Oklahoma from being able to move forward in the way that it needs to. If we want to just skip over the sins of the past, right? And the Mm -hmm. way that people raise that. Because there are still policy implications of decisions that were made in the past. Mm -hmm. And we have to do the work to generation to, to fix those things so that we can move forward generationally. Mm-hmm. And another question is like, uh, when this bill was passed, were uh, people of color's voices integrated into the discussion? I will say this. The representation of decision makers is very, very limited in the state of Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. 
we have a handful of people who identify as people of color. We just elected a few years ago, because this person is in their second term, the first person that identifies as non-binary and as Muslim. First time in our state's history. We had our first Latino senator elected just within the past four years, right? Mm -hmm. And so when there isn't the lens and representation within those elected bodies, those perspectives do get left out of Mm -hmm. conversations, right? Or even when it comes to voting trends and those decisions at that level, Oklahoma is a very low voting state Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of barriers to even voter participation. And so when then you break down the data and you see that there's disproportionate rates among black and brown folks in voter participation. Right. So there's a lot of structural things that exist, but also historic things that affect who's at the table when decisions are made and power structure, right? Mm -hmm. But when it comes to representation, there is very little representation for people of various identities at the state capitol. So continuing that, can you bring up examples of everyday people who are bringing change in Oklahoma, even if they're not in the power of position? And what can we do collectively and systematically to move us to progress and change in Oklahoma? That is a really important question. The most important advice I would give is not giving up. There are so many challenges that our state and nation faces. And it feels so overwhelming for many people who feel like I'm just one person. I can't do this, but it takes that one person Mm -hmm. to step in and do something. And wherever you feel like you can have the most impact, because it takes all of us to move progress forward, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Someone made a statement that stuck with me that do something, because even if it may not fix the problem right away, but it's more than what had happened before. Mm -hmm. And every step moves us in a direction for change to happen. So my first advice is to not give up just because Things seem daunting or difficult. The second piece of advice I would give is to find those areas of passion and get involved in those areas. Mm-hmm. So if there's something in your local community that you care about, it's about the quality of water in your community or getting rid of that pothole on your street. Mm-hmm. Or if it's about 
affordable housing or how do we help more people get quality jobs? Finding those things that fuel your passion and then building community around other people who care about those issues because there is power in number. And also finding those places where you feel like you can do the most good. So if it is that local issue, following your city council meetings and getting to know your city councilors, right? Or if it's those larger issues, bringing other people who have shared perspectives together to meet regularly to learn about what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. To get together and write your congressman or your state lawmaker, right? Because one of the challenges, you can't hold people accountable if you don't know what they're doing or you're not engaged in what they're doing. Mm -hmm. And so it's so important for people to find their issue and to find those ways to get involved and make change. Our systems are developed in a way where change is slow. And that was built deliberately in that way. So we have to, as someone mentioned, um, in a speech that the famous and notable civil rights icon, Claire Looper, mentioned you have to have the resolve to outlast the bigotry, right? Mm. That can be the resolve to outlast, you know, the health disparities, the resolve to outlast whatever that issue is, the challenges in the criminal justice system, whatever the issue is that you care about, building that resolve to keep moving towards change. Um, There's so many people that come to mind of everyday people. Claire Looper was an educator who brought together her students to lead the sit-in movement of this country. A lot of people don't realize that, that the civil, I mean, that the sit-in movement started in Oklahoma City with a group of children as young as like elementary age, sitting at lunch counters, putting their bodies in potential danger, right? Their efforts helped to change not only the trajectory of that lunch counter in Oklahoma City, but inspired a nation as well, right? And those collective efforts over time are moving us towards progress. I think about people like C.C. Davis-Jones, who is a minister who lived in Oklahoma at one point, and she felt a calling to advocate for saving the life of Julius Jones and joining his family who had been doing the work for such a long time to preserve his life. And because of her efforts, family, um, a community leader who's also a rapper named JB, right? Mm -hmm. And so many others, right? Not losing faith and sight in organizing the people right, to raise awareness, to push for saving his life. 
enough attention made it to the governor to make the decision to not execute him, right? Mm -hmm. That didn't happen because a a lawmaker said X, Y, Z. That was grassroots power of everyday people, right? Especially because a year prior to that decision being made, it seemed very, very, very unlikely (laughs) that anything would change in the situation, right? But everyday people demonstrate that things can change and be different, right? And so that's the biggest thing to, I guess, close my comments is to not give up, even though the problems seem big. Identify what your passions are and plug in and connect with others to create community, to have that ripple effect so that change can happen in the ways that we know that can be. Wow, that's very motivating, inspiring. And it really shows how even one person can make a like really big change. And, and thank you for raising awareness about those historical issues, historical matters, and talking about the things that are not always talked about, that many people feel uncomfortable to talk about. And thank you very much. It was amazing to have this conversation with you. And I personally learned a lot uh, about Oklahoma history. And I hope our listeners have, uh, have been learning a lot from you too. So thank you very, very much. It was, very, uh, like, it, it was a pleasure to have you today. Thank you for having me in the conversation. Hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Thick Descriptions Elephant in the Room Unboxed. Want to learn more about us, what we're doing to disrupt traditional educational methods? Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, thickdescriptions.org. 405-397-0584.